You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to Lesson 2, New Testament, Christ and the Gospels. In the previous lesson, we looked at the Old Testament, specifically about certain types of Christ, Christ as the Lamb of God from Isaac and forward. We looked at Christ and Jacob's ladder, Christ as the new temple, the new Bethel, the new house of God. We also looked at Christ as the perfect Davidic king. We saw the role of the Davidic king in the Old Testament was to make God's presence manifest among men, manifest among Israel. And we saw how that foreshadows Christ, who is the true Davidic king, the true king who can truly manifest God's presence among men. Today we're going to look specifically at the Gospel of John first, and then we're going to turn to the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So first for John. John, as we've already looked at, talks about Jesus as the new temple, Jesus as the new Bethel, with that image of when he speaks to Nathanael and says that you will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That's an image of Christ as the new temple. But before that, that's in John 1.51, before that, in the very prologue of John, John 1 verses 1 through 18, the prologue of John as it's called, It's very striking because in Matthew and Luke, the story of Jesus begins in Galilee, begins in Bethlehem, begins in the Middle East. In the Gospel of John, the story of the Gospel begins with all of creation. The very first words, in the beginning was the Word, echoes the first opening lines of Genesis, in the beginning. And so, This whole scene then that John sets, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. That's John 1, verses 1 and 2. Begins right with the story of creation. It's re-narrating the story of Genesis, the story of Genesis now seen through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here we have Jesus as the pre-existent Logos. Logos is the Greek word for word, for word itself. So when John says the word was God, it would be literally in Greek, the Logos, L-O-G-O-S. The Logos is God. So John begins with creation through the word. But then we have in John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word through whom the whole world was created, John 1, John 1, 2, becomes now the Word who has become flesh for our salvation. The Word who has become flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the Greek there basically means tabernacled among us. Dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. God pitched his tents with us to dwell with us. In John, we have the story of Christ's redemption is rooted in the story of creation. The same Word through whom the world is created is the same word through whom the world is saved. Salvation then will become a new creation. Several points in John, as we continue with the Gospel of John, we have this theme of God abiding in Jesus, that God abides with us in Jesus. 
We already looked at the image of the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, that heaven and earth meet in Jesus because Jesus is the new temple. He literally says to the apostles that his body is the new temple in John 2. As it continues on, we have more language about this dwelling with in the Eucharistic discourse in John 6. We have more of this language of abiding with, remaining with. John 6, 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Christ abides in us. We abide in him. The whole mystery of Christ in John is revealed as one of God's abiding presence in Jesus and then in us. So this whole theme of the mystery, ultimately, not simply of the indwelling of God, but the indwelling of the Trinity. John reveals the Trinity probably more than any other part of the New Testament, where we have very clearly the Word differentiated from the Father. So in John 13 to 17, these five chapters, John 13 to 17, are this great meditation on how the Trinity is going to dwell again with man. John 13, 17, if you remember, is the upper room discourse. Jesus is with his apostles celebrating the Last Supper, celebrating the Passover before his crucifixion. And so this whole 13 through 17 is almost its one long homily of Jesus. It's his last preaching, his last teaching, his last being with and instructing his apostles and disciples. In John 13, It begins with a great example of Jesus. Jesus washes the feet of the apostles. He says to them, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In John 13, 17, he has washed the feet of the disciples and he tells the disciples that they should imitate him. They should follow his example. He continues after he says this and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is John 13, 20. He who receives anyone whom I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. If we diagram this out, as we've done here on the board, we'll see that it's God through Jesus, through the apostles, to the believers. Let's look at that one more time. I truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives the believers, he who receives anyone whom I send, the apostles, receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. So there's this great mystery that Christ is revealing that those who receive the ones whom he sends, the apostles, receive him. And those who receive him receive the one who sent him, namely God. So this is also an image of Jesus as the great apostle. Apostle comes from the Greek word meaning one who is sent. Jesus is the great apostle, the one who was sent by the Father, by God. Jesus is sent by him so that we can receive Jesus and receive him. Then the apostles are those who are sent out by Jesus. But again, there's this great mystery, this mysterious indwelling of God, of the Father, so that believers receive the apostles, receive Jesus, and receive God. Thus, Christ is revealing at this great Last Supper, at this great Upper Room Discourse, that everyone, through the apostles, everyone will be able to share in the ultimate life of God, to be able to share in this great mystery. 
So as I said, this is what Christ is revealing at the Last Supper. And it's through the apostles and their ethical works, their works of charity, their works of foot washing, their works of teaching. Through that, believers will come, believers will share ultimately in the life of God. That's John 13. In John 14, Jesus continues. He, in a sense, intensifies the metaphor, the imagery. In John 13, it's receiving the Father. Whoever receives the apostles receives Jesus and thus receives the Father. In John 14, he intensifies it and says, you're not simply receiving God, you're actually seeing God. Just before his death, Philip says to him in John 14, 8, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. It's kind of almost a little joke there. You know, Jesus, just show us the Father. That's all you have to do. Of course, it's impossible, right? You can't show us the Father. The Father's invisible. So it's a huge request. But Jesus answers him. He takes him very seriously. In 14.9, he says, Have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So there he moves from the images of receiving the Father in John 13, now in John 14, to literally seeing the Father. That whoever has seen Jesus, as the apostles have, have seen the Father. So again, we have this image that the believers will see, the apostles will see Jesus, and therefore will be able to see the Father. That this vision of the Father, this receiving the Father, is going to be mediated through Jesus, through the apostles, to the whole church. The second element that comes in very strongly in this whole upper room discourse is that Jesus says he is going to go away. He says he's going to go away, but he is going to send to the believers, send to the apostles, his spirit of truth. In John 14, 15, and 16, he has at least four references where he speaks of the paraclete, the comforter. John 14, 16 through 17, I will pray to the Father and he will give you another counselor, or paraclete, that's the Greek word, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. He even says that it's actually better that Jesus himself, the word in flesh, leave so that his spirit, the spirit of truth, can come to the church and remain with the church. John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. But when I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is going to depart, both through his crucifixion and then through his ascension later, but he will send to the church, send to the apostles, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, and that that spirit will bring to the church remembrance of everything and will bring to the church, not only remembrance of everything, he says, will bring to the church the authority of Jesus. So now we have another, in a sense, another clue. Just as we saw here, the believers will hear the apostles, will hear Jesus, will hear God. How will that happen? It's because Jesus will send the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit will allow the believers to hear the apostles. And the Holy Spirit will dwell within the apostles to allow them to give witness to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will allow the believers to go through the apostles to Jesus, to God. So all of this will be accomplished because God will send himself, his Holy Spirit, to dwell within the believers, to dwell within the church. Finally, then, in John 17, John 17 is known as the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is kind of since the culmination of how God will dwell with his people. And as we talk about this sense of God indwelling, remember, we have to remember the whole history of the temple in the Old Testament. 
the whole history of Bethel, the house of God, the history of Mount Zion, the history of God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle with Moses. God is now going to perfect that and will truly dwell with his people in Jesus Christ. So in John 17, Jesus takes three main central themes that we're going to see and shows how that in each of them, they are going to move from God to himself, to the apostles, to the church. And that, and that by this, then people in the church are going to return to be able to dwell with God. So let's look at those three main themes. The three central themes in John 17 are God's name, God's unity, and God's glory. And for each of these themes, we see that God's name, unity, and glory begin with the Father. The Father shares that glory, that unity, and that name with the Son. The Son then shares it with humanity through the apostles and the other believers. Then humanity shares in the glory of the Son, the name of the Son, the unity of the Son, and ultimately in the Father. So by this indwelling of God with man, man is brought up to dwell with God. It's this great economy. Let me show you a couple passages where we see this in John 17. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, Now, Father, glorify thou in me in thy own presence with the glory which I had with thee before the world was made. Father, he's saying, Father, glorify thou me with thy own presence, with the glory which I had. So the glory which the Son shares with the Father from all eternity, that glory he now shows to the world so that the world can share in that glory. In verse 22 of 17, it says, The glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them even as thou hast loved me. So the glory which the Father gives to the Son, the Son now gives to his believers, to the church. And by that, then he also gives the unity which they share, the Father and the Son, may all be one, may all humanity be one, and may humanity be one by sharing in the unity of the Trinity, by sharing in the unity of the Father and the Son. So we have this great mystery, this great indwelling of God that Jesus is announcing that through him, through his vocation, through his life and death, and ultimately through the sending of the Holy Spirit, which as we saw from John 14, 15, and 16, is the means by which humanity is going to be brought in to sharing the life of God. God's name, which is holy, his holy name that he revealed to Moses, his unity, his perfect oneness as the transcendent God, and his glory, which he possesses from all eternity, that glory and that holiness and that name, that he is going to share with humanity and bring humanity back into himself. That's the utter gift. St. Bonaventure said that God created the world to share his glory, to communicate his glory. We see that's very much at the heart of what John teaches us about believers in Christ, that through Christ, man is now going to be able to dwell with God. After John, when we look at the synoptic gospels, the word synoptic, by the way, means with one eye. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all look at the person of Jesus, in a sense, with one eye. And all of them very much focus on 
Christ as the son of David, Christ as the new king. Sometimes they'll call him the son of man or the son of God. But all of these titles refer to the perfection of the Davidic king, the new David who has come to govern his people, to create the kingdom of God in the perfect way which he alone can do. This is very true from Matthew 1 and Luke 1. As we've already mentioned, Jesus has announced that he is the son of David. The angel Gabriel says to Mary in the Annunciation, he will inherit the throne promised to his David, his father. At Jesus' baptism, where it says, Thou art my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. This is Luke 3.22. This were his words at his baptism are actually, it's a joint quote. The first part is from Psalm 2.7. Thou art my beloved son. The second part, with thee I am well pleased, refers to Isaiah 42.1, one of the suffering servants' psalms. Both of these together announce Jesus as the new king. Uh, Jesus is anointed at the River Jordan at his baptism. At the River Jordan, if you remember back in history, we'll remember a few different important scenes that happen there. We know that Israel finally passes from the wilderness through the River Jordan into the Promised Land. So as John the Baptist comes to baptize Jesus in the River Jordan, it is the new Israel who is going to leave the wilderness and enter the Promised Land through Jesus Christ. Secondly, the theme of anointing takes us back to the kings themselves in the Old Testament. The kings, particularly King Saul and King David, were both anointed by the prophet Samuel. Samuel anointed them as kings, and that's what gave them the power and the spirit to be able to lead Israel. So again, John the Baptist anoints Jesus. He baptizes him, and then literally the Father himself anoints Jesus by sending the dove down as a sign of the Holy Spirit. Finally, at the River Jordan, we also remember that Elijah and Elisha were there and that when Elijah is ready to go on to heaven and he was going to pass on his prophecy, his spirit of prophecy to Elisha, it's at the River Jordan and there Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit and he receives it. So Elijah is the great prophet symbolizing John the Baptist. But then Elisha is the prophet who's going to exceed him, who has a double portion of his spirit, just as Jesus is going to have even greater than a double portion of John's spirit because he has the spirit himself dwelling on him. All of this means is that Jesus will be able to accomplish what the Old Testament kings could not. The Old Testament kings were false shepherds of Israel. Jesus will be a great shepherd. There are two main ways that the king is going to establish righteousness in his people. The first way is that every kingdom needs a law. And just as David was the king of the kingdom, he established the law. Jesus, who is the king who announces the kingdom, is going to announce the new law. He does this above all in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 through 7 and in Luke 6. St. Augustine called the Sermon on the Mount the perfect pattern of the Christian life. In the new law that Jesus gives, he is the new king and he is giving the new law. He is not only the new Moses, he is the new Moses who from the mountain gives the new law. But he is also the new David who as the new king is establishing the true law which will give righteousness in his kingdom. But not only was the king meant to give the law, the king as the son of David was also meant to build the temple. So it's not enough for Jesus simply to give the perfect law of righteousness. He also has to make 
a way for God himself to dwell with his people to build the new temple. Solomon, as the son of David, built the physical temple in Jerusalem. Jesus will build the spiritual temple. In the famous scene at Caesarea Philippi, when Peter confesses Jesus as the son of the living God, as Jesus says to him, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then says to him, truly you are Peter, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, if we remember that Jesus is the son of David, the new Solomon, who is to build the new temple, his listeners and the Jewish listeners and the new Christians would have recognized that Jesus as the new son of David, the new Solomon, is supposed to build not a church, but is supposed to build the temple. And so when he says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, they would know that that means that he is going to build a spiritual temple. So the church will be his temple. The church will be his temple that he builds, a spiritual temple built on a spiritual rock. Solomon built the physical temple on a great rock. Actually, now it's no longer a Jewish rock. Now it's taken over by the Muslims and it's now in Jerusalem known as the Dome of the Rock. That rock, where the center of the Dome of the Rock, that was the great foundation stone, a huge stone where Solomon built his temple and now it's one of the holiest places of Islam. There was a great rock, Solomon built his temple on that rock. In the New Testament, Jesus is saying in Matthew 16, he is the new Solomon. He's not gonna build a physical temple on a physical rock, he's gonna build a spiritual temple, the church, on a spiritual rock, Peter. Peter, which means rock in the Greek. So through Peter and the Petrine office which succeeds him, Jesus is going to be building his spiritual temple which will last forever. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So these are the two main ways that Jesus is the new king establishing his kingdom. One, he gives the law, the new law, the Sermon on the Mount, the gift of the Holy Spirit that establishes the people in righteousness so the people can truly be a holy people. But he also builds the church. And by building the church on Peter, he is making a place where God dwells, the new temple. So now not only do we have a holy people where the people are made holy, but we have a holy land. Not a physical land, but a reality in which God dwells. So with the holy people and the holy land, Christ has established the holy kingdom. Now what I want to do now is take John and Matthew and Mark and Luke and pull them together through the one theme of Christ as the shepherd. The Old Testament kings were meant to be shepherds of Israel. You'll know that Moses himself was a shepherd before leading Israel. David was a shepherd boy before coming to fight Goliath, before he was anointed as king by Samuel the prophet. So the Old Testament kings were meant to be shepherds of their people, but the Old Testament kings were not faithful shepherds. In Ezekiel 34, God actually says that the shepherds are not shepherding my people well. Instead of taking care of the sheep and feeding the sheep, they feed themselves. And he actually says in Ezekiel 34 that he is going to judge the shepherds. But he also promises that he himself will shepherd his people. God himself in Ezekiel 34 says that he will shepherd the people. So what this means then is that in John 10, when Jesus teaches that I am the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd, that's a divine claim because Ezekiel said that God himself would shepherd the people. 
And so Jesus is saying, I am that shepherd. I am God who is now shepherding his people. But we know that Jesus doesn't simply say that he is the good shepherd. In John 21, when Jesus is appearing to Peter after the resurrection, Peter, who has denied Jesus three times, Jesus comes and asks Peter and says, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? He asks him three times, and each time Peter says back, yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And each time Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. So at the very end of the Gospel of John, Jesus sets up Peter as the shepherd. God is the true shepherd, as Ezekiel 34 says. In John 10, Jesus claims to be the good shepherd, the good shepherd who is now God in man, now shepherding his people, but he leaves a human being, namely Peter, to be the shepherd of his people. So Peter is not the true shepherd. Jesus is the true shepherd, but that Jesus will shepherd through Peter. Just as in the Old Testament, God was meant to shepherd through the Davidic king, now the true Davidic king, who is actually God himself, will shepherd through the human being in Peter and the Petrine office that will follow him. So we have through John this great scene of the shepherd. God the shepherd, through his son, shepherds through Peter and the office that follows. That mirrors then perfectly what we saw in Matthew 16, when we see that Jesus gives to Peter as the rock of his church. When he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus sets up Peter as a vicar. From the Old Testament in Isaiah 22, we see that this is actually a royal steward. The king would have a royal steward that would have the power to bind and loose. Jesus, in Matthew 16, he is the Davidic king. He builds his church, his temple, but he gives Peter the power of the keys, the power to bind and loose. So, again, in Matthew, we have Jesus, who is the king, who is ruling through Peter. Peter will have the authority on earth. Just as in John, Jesus is the king, but Jesus is the king as shepherd. He will be shepherd through Peter and the Petrine office. So in both these ways, we have God coming through Jesus and then Jesus coming through his church, particularly through the Petrine office, to manifest that authority, to manifest that shepherding, and ultimately so that God's great wondrous deeds of shepherding his people correctly will be conducted in a human form such that all human beings can see and recognize that there is one shepherd, one visible shepherd on earth, namely the Pope, who gives witness to the one shepherd who is Christ, who gives witness to the one shepherd who is God. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.